Episode 16, Understanding Our Emotions, Part B. Rethinking the Bible with Jack Pelham. Welcome to Rethinking the Bible. This is an audio podcast where we apply reality-based thinking to interpreting the Bible. Reality-based thinking is my name for a philosophy that seeks to make constant use of honesty, rationality, and responsibility in seeking out the reality of things while trying to avoid common errors. And for the record, I define reality as the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to one's perceptions, beliefs, or wishes about them. And you should know, this is a serial podcast, so it's best if you start from episode one and work your way forward from there, because we lay some foundational principles up front, and you'll be lost later if you skip them now. So welcome back. This is episode 16. It's part two of our discussion about understanding our emotions. And uh, we're going to pick up right here in just a few seconds. Just wanted to remind you, we've been talking about uh, Sally, who had gone to the park as a four-year-old, was scared of the dog, and then who reasoned through it with some help that this particular dog is not like the one that first made her scared of dogs. And so we've been talking about how emotions are changeable. And such. So we're going to pick it up from here and let's jump right in with where we were. So, what happens, and I'm telling myself we're going to talk about the three part model of the mind in a moment, but what happens when you're in a discussion about the Bible or about church doctrine or something of this nature and you get unpleasant feelings? Well, that just doesn't sound right. That just doesn't feel right. I don't feel good about what he's saying. You know. Well, do you want out? Do you want to shut it down? Or do you want to be more mature about it and take a view that says, okay, look, this is difficult. Oh, boy, we disagree. I really wish this weren't happening. But I can decouple from the feelings and deal with the algorithmic part. I can discuss it. I can say, well, uh, gee, Larry, you know, um, if what you're saying is true, how would you explain this scripture and that passage over there? Right. And we could actually have, uh, some give and take, and, and maybe he's got a way to explain those that I never thought of before, or maybe in his explaining a way of those passages, I can see he's cheating. Then I'd be, oh, okay, (laughs) I see you're cheating. And then we can discuss that, assuming Larry, who brought up the whole thing, is willing to decouple from his feelings of anger or competitiveness or frustration or fear or embarrassment or whatever, if he's willing to decouple and discuss it. And what I'm going to tell you, it is a rare person who has learned to do this. And I can tell you this from years of experience of discussing all manner of topics with all kinds of people, people of different thinking dispositions. 
and again we've we've discovered you know your disposition is just your habitual way of dealing with things or of thinking or feeling about things it's it's what you're like and so i can tell you that some people will say oh well that's very interesting i notice you and i disagree would you please tell me all the details of your position so that i can examine them for myself well that's very rare that you'll find that and other people on the extreme opposite they just drop out of the conversation maybe they even unfriend you maybe they say something on the way out the door oh well i can see that you are you know blank whatever uh you're arrogant you are from satan you're a heretic uh you know whatever some way to quote justify end quote shutting down the conversation and ignoring whatever you're saying or asking or whatever information you are bringing to the table, right? This obviously is immature behavior. It's foolish. It's very, very common to some extent. Not everybody is going to curse you out and unfriend you and block you on Facebook, but they will go quiet. And they may stay quiet for a very long time, or maybe they're back in a day or a week or a month. Uh, you just never know, right? So they're not uh, able to deal maturely with this. So let's talk about the uh, three-part model, the tripartite theory of mind. And this is from Keith Stanovich uh, and also Richard West. Uh, Stanovich is a very interesting cognitive scientist I believe he's at the University of Toronto, and he is the one who wrote a book, I believe in 2012, called What Intelligence Tests Miss. And that book is very fascinating. It's not exactly written for the layman. It's written to start a conversation with psychologists and you know other cognitive scientists. But in that book, he points out, hey, we give people IQ tests all the time, you know, the intelligence quotient test. And those standard IQ tests do not measure all of the thinking skills that are necessary for rational thinking. And what he means by rational thinking is that kind of deliberate thinking that is necessary in order to make our own personal beliefs jibe with the real world, to make them map accurately onto the reality around us. And he would define reality as the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to uh, our perceptions about them or our beliefs about them, our wishes about them, our traditions about them, and so forth. And so uh, Stanovich says, hey, the standard IQ test does not measure all the skills necessary for good rational thinking. Well, this is very interesting because what IQ basically is, is something akin to the processing speed of a computer. If we give these 10 problems to person A, they can solve them quickly than person B can do it, right? So therefore, a more, they can solve them faster than a person B can solve them, and so therefore, they have a higher IQ. Okay, well, that's very useful, and in fact, it has been used a great deal. For instance, if you're going to become a high-ranking officer in the military, uh, you're going to be uh, judged in part for that position by your IQ score. And I'm sure that large corporations use this for 
uh, picking who will be their uh, C-level officer, CEO, COO, and so forth. Uh, so that's become a big part of our society. But what if Stanovich is right? Hey, to get things right in your thinking regularly, there are some skills required that are not measured on the IQ test. And indeed, uh, you can, well, actually you cannot find. I developed a short quiz of four questions that is currently offline because we got a huge malware attack some months back and haven't rebuilt the uh, our internet world yet. But um, I do actually go over these uh, three of these questions, I believe, in the uh, YouTube introduction to reality-based thinking, which I posted a couple of years ago in video format. And I've put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, I have a channel at YouTube called Reality-Based Thinking. And so far, uh, it is the first three um, uh, parts of an episode about just the idea of reality-based thinking, what I mean by it, and about rationality, responsibility, and honesty. And those, uh, some of those questions on this quiz are in that uh, video production. It's about 90 minutes overall. So something you want to do when you have time uh, to do it. Each, uh, it's three episodes, and each one's roughly 30 minutes. So I uh, have left that in the show notes, and that will always be in the show notes from here forward. And I do hope you'll take the time to think that through. It's a really good primer about what uh, I mean by reality-based thinking. And largely, if you want to know the uh, scientific term for it, the philosophical term, it, um, a lot of it has to do with uh, epistemic rationality. And so a lot of people's eyes glaze over when they hear words like that and they shut down. Uh, so I picked the term reality-based thinking which doesn't require so much work to get a mental handle on the term. So anyway, here comes Stanovich, and he says, hey, you know, IQ doesn't really measure everything that needs measuring because people can have uh, some seriously irrational mental habits, and your IQ test is not going to tell you that. This is why uh, you may know a guy who's a rocket surgeon at work and yet, when you see him at home and you ask him some question about, say, politics or religion, he may give you the stupidest answer you've ever heard. He may give you some answer that obviously does not jive with reality, and you wonder, hey, what planet were you born on, right? Because uh, having a high IQ is not everything you need to be highly rational in order to, to have your beliefs jive with the real world. And so uh, it could be that your rocket surgeon neighbor also has those rationality skills and gives you fantastic answers about politics or religion, but it may very well be that he does not. And, of course, you'd have to judge that on a case-by-case -case basis by examining the person in question thoroughly uh, rather than just assuming in stereotypical fashion that, oh, he's a rocket surgeon, therefore he must have foolish beliefs about politics or religion. So anyway, having said that, I wanted to talk about Stanovich's uh, alternative model of the mind, and we're talking theory of mind. If you recall, uh, Daniel Kahneman, the one who wrote the book Thinking Fast and Slow, he talked about these two systems of thinking, System one is the very fast, autonomous stuff. Stanovich calls it autonomous. 
And system two is the slow stuff, the algorithmic, uh, in Stanovich's word. And then that's it. That's the two parts of the mind. That's how it is. And that's all there is to the Kahneman model. Well, uh, Stanovich comes along and says, hey, if everybody has these two parts to their minds, why aren't all people the same? Why don't they all make the same decisions? And he says, well, there has to be some other factor that can account for individual differences between people. So Stanovich has a third part in his model, a tripartite model. He has the uh, autonomous mind that we've already talked about, which deals a lot with your feelings and with your trained biases. And I'll talk some more about that so I don't neglect that. So uh, he has this, uh, the two-part model, but the third part uh, in addition to the autonomous and the algorithmic, Sanovich has what he calls the reflective mind. Now, this idea may be fairly familiar to those who uh, have read enough in psychology. I hope you're not bothered by the clacking of the, the door. I'm in my uh, classroom space, which is uh, a warehouse space, and the wind outside, our Montana wind, blows and rattles the bay door. Uh, so I hope you're not hearing that too badly. Uh, we're just going to live with it this time because it's hard to stop and wait till the wind quits blowing if you live in Montana. So anyway, uh, Stanovich has a three-part mind, and running this three-part mind is what he calls the reflective mind. Now, you may find this familiar if you're used to uh, psychological talk. You may hear executive function. It's a little similar to the idea that somebody in there is running the controls of what all goes on in your mind, especially of the algorithmic mind, the problem-solving skills. And so this idea that we have a reflective mind, and it is the engineer on the train. It is the part of the mind that decides, I need to do some thinking about that. And it's also the part of the mind that says, no, I don't need to do any thinking about that. Or... I've already done enough thinking about that, and here's my decision. Here's what I'm going to implement. So that is the reflective mind. Uh, executive function, I get that. That seems to make pretty much sense. And I have wondered, too, as a Christian, as a Bible student, I have wondered whether Stanovich may have his finger on a very real thing, that there is indeed a separate part of us, separate from these other two parts of the mind, and as I ponder the whole Bible, um, you know, the body of language in the Bible about uh, the human and soul and spirit and heart and mind and, and all this we've discussed previously, some of that is hard to get to. But this idea of spirit is a little bit different in the Bible because it says God is the father of spirits and it says that the spirit returns to God who gave it. The body does not, the brain does not, but the spirit of man, ah, that seems to be different. And I have wondered whether Stanovich's three-part model might include the spirit of man as that reflective mind. It is that thing that, if I understand the Bible right, goes back to God after we die and faces a judgment with God, uh, presumably as to how we lived our lives here on earth. 
what was our disposition? How did we treat people? What were we like? Were we foolish or wise? Did we mature or not? This sort of thing. And we'll talk about judgment in episodes to come. And so I do wonder, I like Stanage's model very much because of this reflective mind. And if nothing else, it puts the focus on the importance of reflection. And the Bible has uh, quite a lot to say about reflection, and we should talk about that some more at length soon, although we've certainly already talked about it with verses like, uh, come let us reason together and give careful thought to your ways. That's what the reflective mind does. Hmm, let me think carefully about uh, what I just did or what I am intending to do or what I normally do in such and such a situation. So there's the three-part model of the mind and the reflective mind becomes the individual difference between people. Now, obviously not everybody is in the same health. Uh, physiologically, some are more healthy than others. Some may have um, a brain uh, a birth defects. Some may have uh, chemical problems caused by whatever, uh, food they eat or toxins in their environment or maybe drugs they've taken that aren't uh, safe drugs. Uh, they may have brain injuries where the brain does not work as well and the mind does not have the same quality of a physical host space that uh, other healthy people have. But in general, uh, this is the way the mind seems to be set up and that we have a decision maker in there which I think may well be that spirit of man that the Bible talks about, who decides how we're going to use the brain in this real world, in our real bodies. And to me, that's just a fascinating topic that God created a person and let's call him, uh, I don't know, um, I cannot think, of, let's call him Winton. Okay, so Winton's in this world and let's watch Winton over his lifetime and see what he does with his mind and how he uses it. Does he take himself seriously as a person? Does he try to better himself? Does he learn to get things right more often than not in his thinking, in his deciding, his judging, in his believing? Or is he a haphazard in the way he makes his judgments? I think it's a fascinating topic. I think God wants us to think it's fascinating and important. And I think the Bible is filled with threads of this kind of thing throughout. So I think we need to understand when it comes to even discussing the Bible, which is what this whole podcast is about, there's a difference in some, in some mental processes. For example, if I were to ask you, what is 17 times 53? What happens in your brain as a result of that question? Do you feel the answer? Oh, he asked that question and I just suddenly felt so uh, 901. That's how I felt, 901. <laughs> no, uh, if you're normal, you don't feel the answer. You start some sort of a calculating process in your mind. Now you might have some other feelings like, oh my, he's asking me a math question. I'm afraid, I'm going to feel embarrassed, uh, I feel anxious now, I'm on the spot, I have to do math. Yes, but you don't feel the answer. And this is a lot when somebody asks you some Bible question, you don't know, oh, okay, I, I could, it's teen ministry in the Bible. Oh, I don't know, uh, 
I guess I could go look it up, <laughs> right? Okay, well, that requires work and you may feel some sort of um, anxiety about this or you may feel, oh, wow, a challenge. I love challenges, a puzzle. Let's go work the problem. Uh, you may be that sort or somewhere in between, probably is more typical. And that's all okay. The question is uh, not how you feel about it, but will you process it? Can you do it? Can you go find out the answer either to the math problem here or to the teen ministry thing? But a lot of people be like, what do you mean is teen ministry biblical? I went through teen ministry and it was fantastic, <laughs> right? I feel great about teen ministry. How can you even ask the question? And so here is uh, basically they're mounting a defense based on their emotions as if the emotions themselves are a proper justification for a practice. I feel good about it. Therefore, it must be right and proper. Well, what if someone else doesn't feel good about your teen ministry? Does that necessarily make it unrighteous and improper? What makes your feelings about it uh, the right standard for judgment, but not their feelings about it? Or have you noticed how your feelings may waver a bit on some topic or other? Sometimes I just don't feel like um, like like uh, watching sports is good. Sometimes I think that must be from the devil. It's a big distraction. One friend said this to me some years back. I remembered that. Well, what about the other times? Well, I do watch myself from time to time and I enjoy it. Okay, so your feelings waver. Are we going to judge the whole thing by your negative feelings about it on one day? Or are we going to judge it by your positive feelings about it two months later when you're watching a championship game and you love it? You see where I'm going here? The feelings are not uh, really the standard for reality. And yet so many people will even to say, make a judgment by their feelings. Some it's, it's more like they're assuming a judgment. Oh, I feel good about it. No problem. I'm in the habit of going with my feelings. No problem. Fine. Well, is this their best judgment work? Is this their most diligent, uh, work in making decisions? No, it's quite, uh, flippant and undisciplined and, quick and sloppy, but it is their decision. So it's a little tricky talking about this because they're not really making a judgment in one sense. They're sort of assuming the judgment, which is very interesting. And we should definitely talk about memes and our hearsay culture and how we just assume lots and lots of things that we have not gone to check out or to thoroughly uh, process or examine. And of course, this theme has been running uh, throughout this ep since the first episode uh, of this podcast. So, um, I did want to share something today from a psychologist. I'm going to put a link in the show notes for a TEDx talk given by Dr. Joan Rosenberg. Uh, and she's describing what, uh, some scientists or cognitive scientists have called the Rosenberg reset. And this is fascinating. The video is about 15 minutes. I think I start uh, the sharing link I have in the notes starts at about a minute and three seconds in where she says, what I found is that what holds people back is their inability or their challenges with 
dealing with unpleasant feelings. Yet nobody really teaches us what to do or how to handle them. And she goes on later, uh, encouraging people to, quote, make the choice to stay present in the moment. She tells a story, and end quote, uh, this is me talking now. She tells a story about uh, having been stunned by somebody emotionally once on a hayride. She had been very quiet, and the person next to her says, you're boring. Oh, well, okay. And so, uh, however this might make one feel, it also, in her case, fascinated her about psychology and why people think like they think and why they're different from one another. And so she says in all her study for some 30 years now, she has uh, been very fascinated with the idea of with the idea of unpleasant feelings and how we deal with them. And she points out that feelings, there is a physiological response to the brain releases chemicals. And this is the autonomous system doing this, the immediate fast system, system one. The brain releases chemicals. It goes out through the bloodstream and you physically feel some emotions. And you may feel them a lot, or you may feel them a little bit. Like in the case with embarrassment, I've been embarrassed many, many times. And sometimes among those, it has been where there's definitely that physical rush you feel, that uh, the heat coming up from the chest and through the neck and into the face, the ears get hot. You can feel like my ears are on fire. Uh, but she points out that even in that extreme case of that kind of physiological response accompanying this emotion of embarrassment, that only lasts from 60 to 90 seconds. And she encourages people learn how to ride the wave rather than to shut down. Or again, in her words, quote, make the choice to stay present in the moment, end quote. Well, think about what I've been saying about how people shut down. They either go quiet, they unfriend you, they stomp off and leave. They call you something mean first and then stomp off and leave. Um, they smile at you but inwardly hate you, and then they go quiet thereafter. Any of this kind of thing, that's shutting down. They're not processing anymore. And so in you know, with, with learning the Bible, if people are going to shut down on the other end, it's a short conversation. And so this is one of the key skills I'm hoping that listeners to this podcast will recognize as very good and worthy skills and learn how, okay, Jack just said something that sounds kind of nuts to me, or that's really novel, never heard that before, or that can't be because my preacher has never said that. Or my translation doesn't read that way. That can't be right. You know, any of these kinds of things that tend to be thought stoppers, that tend to shut it down, shut down the conversation. So I put a link uh, in the show notes to this video. I think it's about 15 minutes. And I would strongly suggest go give it a watch. Um, and yeah, you may be uh, skeptical, uh, cynical. You may be a little bit biased against psychologists because some of what some psychologists say are nuts and they are anti-reality. And yet here's one I think you might be able to relate to what she's saying. And this is why I wanted to go over this, because a lot of people shut down and they're just not able to have the conversations that need to be had. She does identify eight unpleasant emotions, and uh, she says they have bodily sensations. And funny, 
I think that sensation in my case may be sometimes very minimal, such that I'm not even aware of it. But I definitely have emotions. In fact, I I was talking to a psychologist, uh, I don't know, 15 years ago or something, maybe more, maybe 20. And she said to me, you know, you are one of the most uh, self-aware people I've ever met. Because she would ask me about this or that, and I could tell her how I feel about this, how I could feel about that. And she, she just sat back and said, she just sat back and looked at me and said, you are the most self-aware person I've ever met. And so uh, I thought, well, okay, yay. I was depressed at the time and trying to get some help thinking through it. And yet, uh, what a compliment that at least I knew how to tell you what my emotions were. So um, here are eight that she lists. Uh, they are sadness, shame, helplessness. And again, these are all the, the unpleasant emotions. Uh, anger, vulnerability, embarrassment, disappointment, frustration. Those are the eight. And I thought about it. I added a couple more uh, just based on my own experience with having Bible conversations and see if these don't make sense to you as things people would feel when they get in a difficult conversation where they don't agree about the facts. Uh, my number nine was, uh, I voiced it as either uncertainty or confusion. And somebody might say, well, those are cognitive processes, uh, that's a, a mental state rather than an emotional state. But, uh, and I'm not expert enough to know, well, what exact emotion goes with this feeling of uncertainty or the confusion that I feel, especially the like, uh, oh my, um, Jack says that, that uh, you know, teen ministry isn't in the Bible. And, and well, I think teen ministry is great and I had a great experience and, and well, surely God loves this and, and, how could it be even that we you know, would need to talk about it? Or, well, what if it's not in the Bible? So what, right? These kinds of things that would come up um, quite naturally, mind you. Well, if somebody's going to shut down and not deal with it because they're afraid of this uncertainty or the confusion, um, that's what I'm concerned about, the shutting down. And then the number 10 that I wrote was fear of having the apple cart turned over or having their neat little package of uh, theological understandings rearranged. I do think, I'm not sure exactly how it turns out this way, but a lot of Christians seem to be quite afraid of any sort of challenge or question to their existing beliefs. I just imagine, well, what if we were the sort who could handle anything? Oh yeah, Jack, how do you know God exists? Okay, well, let's talk about that. It may take us a while, but let's talk that through. What if we were the sort like that rather than how dare you question whether God exists? What are you like from Satan? <laughs> right? This, uh, you see the difference in the two responses. They're quite extremely different. And yet uh, so many of us seem so afraid to field any question. Or then there's the camp that, well, I'll tell you how I know God exists. He exists because the Bible says it, and I believe it, and that settles it. Like, okay, well, that's not a very thoughtful response. That's not a very reflective response. And implied with that response is other stuff like, and if you don't believe it, you're probably stupid or unspiritual or worldly. There's something wrong with you, right? 
rather than if you look at Paul, who considered his ministry, his goal, his routine was to give people answers that he said were, quote, true and reasonable, end quote. And you see how that doesn't shut things down. The truth and reason does not shut down. But self-defense does. And so um, Dr. Rosenberg and her eight unpleasant emotions and a couple more that I put in there. And again, I, uh, there is uh, disagreement among cognitive scientists as to how many emotions there are. Some will say, well, there's five basic ones and then, you know, maybe different names for each of those and such. But I, you know, today's goal is not to uh, try to settle all that. It's simply to talk about it and uh, this general idea that shutting down is not the way to come to a better understanding of anything. You know, suppose somebody wants to ask you, hey, what's your name? I'm not telling. Oh, well, where do you live? Not telling. What do you do for a living? Not telling. That's a lot of what it tends to be like trying to discuss things with Christians about the Bible. And I notice also that um, people may not be very good at having those conversations, even if they wanted to. You know, somebody who's generally incurious may indeed come up with some question from time to time about the Bible. Um, let's see, if, if, God, if God saw everything he made and it was very good, well, how, how does this explain how Satan uh, is evil? Well, that's a very good question. In fact, uh, I plan for us to talk for a long time about that uh, sometime in the future. Uh, but if you're not allowed to ask that question in your fellowship, then what are you going to do with that? You're going to stuff it? Are you going to go privately and find somebody to discuss it with at work or on the Internet and sort of have this separate uh, world from your church fellowship, right? Or you're going to go just find another group to be in who is willing to discuss things like that. And this is a, a, big, a big issue. I, I tell you what, I'm going to cut this off soon. I don't know how long it's gone. I don't really care. I will split it into two uh, episodes if need be. However, what I want to do is to tell you one story about one particular way of shutting things down. And it's a very popular way, and I'll bet you you've heard of it before. And I want to talk about it and how it tends to run, just to give you a practical example of uh, what a lot of Christians are not very good at dealing with. And it's this idea of, quote, core doctrine, end quote. Uh You've also heard it called maybe essential doctrine, or some people say in a more familiar way, well, that's not a salvation issue. So core doctrine, essential, doc essential doctrine, salvation issue. These ideas tend to be along the lines that, uh, okay, in the Bible, there are certain things that are like really important, and then there's other stuff. And so here's, uh, here's a typical way that this will come out. And I'm remembering back to, uh, I don't know, 12 years ago, maybe to a, um, house church meeting that I went to. 
And uh, the man who was uh, giving the lesson that day, he, I think, had been an elder in other congregations and such. And this was a small group of 10 or 20 at the most. And so he gave his lesson, and I don't remember the subject matter. And at the end, I asked a question that he could not answer. And he says, oh, well, that's, you know, that's a very interesting question. Um, but, and then he just ignored the question and went on and, and gave a conclusion to his lesson. And then he says, well, let's end with a prayer. And <laughs> you've probably seen people do this. And I've done this myself. Uh, I won't do this anymore. But in his prayer, he used it as an opportunity to teach Jack. And he says something about uh, like, Lord, uh, please help us to discern between what is merely interesting and what is truly core. And so from this, I assumed that I was supposed to realize my question had been merely interesting, even though it stumped the teacher who had no answer, but he judged that it was not core, meaning it was not essential. It was not a fundamental important. Uh, imp it was not a fundamental importance. And so he cast me off discourteously, as the song says. And um, I was supposed to learn from this. And he went home and never looked into what I'd asked, never contacted me again about it. And so the very interesting question that I'd come up with, whatever that was, uh, got left, uh, hung out to dry and was never addressed again. And I've seen this happen in other situations. I remember another elder in another church teaching a class uh, from the Gospel of John in the passage that talks about, if anyone believes in me, streams of living water will flow from within him. And I raised my hand and said, well, what does it mean if a person believes in Jesus but does not have streams of living water flowing from within him? And again, the uh, elder looked like the deer in the headlights. Oh, that's a good question, Jack. And he at least said, I don't really know. Uh, but it never came up for conversation again thereafter. Apparently, he was quite content to shut down the question and never to address it again. And so on this uh, topic of core doctrine, here's a very interesting thing. Uh, many people, I'm going to take a break right now and be diligent and look this up. So uh, I'm going to my Bible. Okay, so rather than to wing it, I have stopped and looked up the two passages I want to talk about. This idea of core doctrine is very popular. And when I ask people, well, explain to me this idea. Where do you get that from? Uh, they're going to have an answer. In fact, they're going to have two answers, uh, typically. One is from Hebrews uh, chapter 6. And so I'm going to read that. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV. And this is uh, Hebrews 6, 1 through 3. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. So I'm going to stop right there. Elementary doctrine gets translated into, you know, or not translated, but it gets restated as, paraphrased as core doctrine, essential doctrine, things like that. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, 
not laying again a foundation of, and here you go, here's your list, repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So there's a little passage from Hebrews. And it throws out this idea of elementary doctrine. Okay, so we're going to run with that. Well, what's on the list? Let's look. Uh, Let's see. A foundation of repentance from dead works. Faith toward God. Instruction about washings. The laying on of hands. The resurrection of the dead. And eternal judgment. How many things is that? Uh, Repentance. Faith. Washings. Laying on of hands. Resurrection of the dead. Eternal judgment. That's six things if I'm counting it right. So this core doctrine list includes six things. And so somebody might very well say, ah, Jack, well, your question that you've just asked in my Bible class is very, very interesting. But of course, it falls outside of this list of six things. So it is not a core doctrine. It's not an essential teaching. It's not even a salvation issue. (laughs) So we're going to ignore your question. And uh, they will chalk it up as core doctrine. Now, this is very interesting if I were to ask, oh, well, I heard your sermon last week on the importance of giving. Oh, yes, I I enjoy giving that sermon. I I always love doing that one. Well, I heard your sermon, and I noticed that uh, giving is not one of the topics on this list of core doctrines. How is it then that you invested the church's time in talking about something not on the list? Now, I've never challenged anybody like that, but... You can imagine how that kind of challenge might go. The answer would be, uh, well, uh, gee, uh, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> right? So you can shut somebody down in a class for asking something that you don't think is core doctrine, but you yourself teach classes uh, quite often about things that are not on your list. And so here's my uh, other uh, difficult question for those who hold to this idea that, oh, there is a core doctrine list, they will turn either to this passage in Hebrews 6 or to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7 or so. And I'm going to read that one right now, and then we'll talk about my question. So this also is from the ESV, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 3 through um, verse 8, actually. For I delivered to you as of, get this, first importance, there's your your core doctrine kind of idea. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And here's Paul's list. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, uh, 
Paul goes on to speak of himself, that Jesus appeared to him. So depending, depending on how you count those, that's about eight things on the list. But the last several ones are about him appearing to people. So if we want to boil this down to the real hardcore things on the list, it's uh, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised, that, and then that he appeared to people. So that's four things. He died, buried, raised, and appeared to people. Well, here's the big question. Died, buried, raised, appeared to people is not the same list as your core doctrines proof text in Hebrews 6. Over there, it's uh, repentance from dead works, faith toward God, instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. That's way different material from uh, he died for our sins, buried, raised, and appeared to people. So if your two core doctrine proof texts in the Bible don't match in their details, do you really have a solid foundation for this concept of core doctrine? And better yet, here's what Kay always points out, who gets to decide what is core? What question could you ask me that I couldn't say, oh, that's not core doctrine, that's not an essential doctrine, and then just dismiss you? Who gets to decide what is core? I could make the argument, you know, my question is raised from as a natural response to reading the scriptures that we all seem to think that God has provided to this generation. So my question comes from the scriptures. Who are you to declare that it is not core and is not worthy of a response. God started it. How is asking a question about it somehow being defiant to God or inappropriate for discussion in church Bible class? How can that be? What kind of culture have you built or what sort of subculture in the church society have you built where questions are considered an inappropriate topic of conversation? And I mean, especially questions about the text. If the two common proof texts here for the core doctrine idea don't even match in their content, how can you possibly continue the charade that there is indeed some God-sanctioned list of core doctrine topics. Well, you can't. God put 31,000 verses in the Bible. Assuming it's God's work or that he wanted these verses delivered to us, that, that he's at play somehow in all that or was at play in the making of all of that. And I agree with that. I think God wants us to have these books. But 
who gets to decide, oh, well, this part of the book, yeah, that's really important. This other part, no, don't ask about that. Don't question about that. Pay no attention to that wizard behind the curtain. Don't look there, right? <laughs> that's, that's what it is, folks. This is the cognitive moral miser trying to control information for some reason. Now, the reason's going to be different for everybody. It could be as simple as this. Oh, please don't ask me. It took me four hours to prepare for this class, and it was hard enough as it is, and please don't ask me any further questions, Jack. I get that. I totally get that. I have to make myself stop and look things up in the middle of this discussion today uh, because it's the right thing to do. It's diligent, and this is worthy um, subject matter, and it's worth doing it right. So I totally understand fatigue. Sometimes, though, it's it's protective. It's like self-protective. Well, I'm the teacher, and you're not. And how dare you question me with this? I'll put you in your place. Sometimes it's like that. Hopefully not very often, but yeah, there are going to be some characters like that out there. And again, sometimes, as I've already mentioned, how dare he question me? I'm teaching the Word of God. And how dare he ask a question or challenge my point? Uh, he is striving against God. You know, this is Satan tempting me. This is, you know, whatever kind of dialogue they have like that in their heads about it. Well, I think that's all messed up. A good, mature teacher ought to be able to say, wow, I have never thought of that question before. I have no idea how to answer that. Let's pick it up here next week. I'll go do my homework. Maybe we'll talk in the meantime. I don't know. But we'll definitely continue. But you have blindsided me here. I have no idea. And that's okay. A lot of times there is that sort of teacher pride that, well, I'm the teacher. Therefore, if it's worth knowing, I know it already. And other people in my class aren't supposed to know things as well as me or not better than me, certainly. And so I feel disrespected. I feel like I have to defend myself and I'm going to shut it down. And there could be all kinds of different motives or mixtures of these things. I understand that. So I just wanted to talk generally about this. This core doctrine idea is one of the chief thought stopper uh, techniques that happens in the churches. Some won't say it this sophisticatedly. They will just say, well, that's... Uh, I've heard heard somebody say, well, thank God this is not a salvation issue. Oh, okay. So who, how do you derive that answer? Why is it that we default to, oh, well, it's not a salvation issue. Therefore, we can let it slide. We can leave it unsettled. We can neglect to investigate the matter. Uh, we can look down on those who do investigate the matter, those who bring it up. We can feel divided against them on account of this, all because it's not a salvation issue. Well, that's funny. I found that people like that, even when we're discussing uh, specific salvation passages, they tend to act the same way, and they just can't shut it down on that account. They just have to find some other reason to shut down a conversation that, that ranges farther than they're willing to think in their own minds. Uh, 
So these are some of the bad behaviors that happen. I think a lot of it is because people don't know how to manage their emotions when they feel them. Uh, they've not learned to manage them well, and they've certainly not learned to decouple from that. Hey, you know what? I may be feeling embarrassment now at this question I'm not prepared for, but I'll be over that in a minute or a minute and a half, and I can still keep discussing it. You know, being corrected does sting. Uh, at least it stings me. Uh, whether it's right or wrong, it stings the emotions. Uh, when it's right, there may also be some shame that goes with that. When it's wrong, there may be some anger that goes with that. That jerk, you know, corrected me on this, and he doesn't even have his facts straight, and he ought to have more respect for both me and the Bible, and I'm very angry at him. Yeah, okay, well, those kind of feelings will come up. But if we cannot decouple from our feelings and deal with the actual facts that uh, presumably God had somebody write down in this ancient book to be delivered even into our generation, if we can't decouple from our feelings and address the actual words and their original meanings, what kinds of people are we? I mean, really? You know, what did Paul tell the Corinthians? They were... Um, uh, disunified about this or that and the other thing. And, oh, the lawsuits among them. This is what, chapter 6, 1 Corinthians 6. And he says, you are completely defeated already if this is going on in your fellowship. Well, they weren't completely defeated in the most literal sense because like, they still believed in God. They still believed in Jesus. They still met together. As a congregation, they still understood Jesus was the Lord and the Christ. And, you know, so obviously it's not like you have got everything wrong. I think what he's telling them, though, is about the importance of that one failure that you, I mean, you guys are so lost over this one thing. And I think we can be that same way, too. There's a lot of dysfunction among believers when it comes to discussing the Bible and the doctrines thereof. So... That's why I wanted to stop in this episode and talk about this. We could go on and on about the emotions. In, in fact, I will mention this now. I'm not sure when we'll get back to it. But some people uh, will definitely talk about this idea that we read about in the New Testament about um, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and what they taught that was about and what it did and how it worked and so forth. But I realized today that uh, there's a lot of confusion over, oh, I have this feeling on this subject. Is this God talking to me? Is this the Spirit talking to me? Well, who knows? Could be. Maybe it's not. But it would certainly help us if we understood more about our emotions and how they work. Uh, because what if, and if you're like most more mature Christians, you've probably dealt with this. Oh, that thing I was so sure was God talking to me. Uh, that actually was just my own emotions, and they weren't uh, calibrated just right for this topic. So I felt really against it in the beginning and just judged quickly. And I said that must be God doing that in me, you know, guiding me, leading me, 
leading my heart. God put it on my heart and such. But, uh, gee, what if I was wrong? And indeed, what if you were? And I think this happens uh, quite a lot with any challenge to the status quo. Uh, in churches, I think it's very easy to give in to a status quo bias. Let's just keep things as they are. Don't change anything, uh, whether in the doctrines or the practices, in the theology, in the way we talk about things, in our nomenclature, in our habits, our routines, the feel of the spirit, the look and feel of the sanctuary or auditorium in which we meet. Let's don't change the hymnals. <laughs> Let's don't change the songs. You know, there can be a lot of that uh, status quo bias where even a good change is rejected simply because it's a change. And that requires uh, upsetting the apple cart. It requires some sort of new cognitive work. Uh, it requires getting through some emotions about it. Let's just leave everything the same, even if it's not optimized already. So uh, these are the kinds of things I think provide such steady stumbling blocks to people. And uh, if we can't get past this, I don't think we can really learn anything about the Bible, not to speak of. It's you're only going to relearn stuff you've already learned. And a good bit of that may be wrong for all you know, because we're not the examining sort if we're the self-protective, emotion-protecting sort. And so that's why I wanted to talk about this today. I hope you find this useful. As always, I'd love to have your feedback. But that's it. I have no idea yet what I will do next as a topic. But as always, I'm so glad you joined in.